Welcome to Any Given You. This show is about all things college football, and on it you will hear insights, analysis, discussion, predictions, and stories of any given topic from any given time, past, present, or future. We believe that the stats are great, but the stories are greater. And you should listen if you have a passion for the game and what makes it great. We're going to talk about touchdowns and touched lives. Come with us on a journey that extends beyond the field of play. We will talk wins, losses, and coachable moments learned on the football field and taken to the classroom, workforce, home, and even the battlefield. Division one to division none. Five-star recruits to walk-ons, it doesn't matter. If it's college football, it's worth the story. I'm your host, Michael Megan. U.S. Army Ranger and a former college football player, and more importantly, a lifelong fan of all things college football. Whether you are a casual fan, a fanatic, a coach, a player, or just a person who loves great stories, then huddle up and commit at any given you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Any Given You podcast here in season three. I am Michael Megan, and I am your host, as always, on this show. Very excited to be spending some time with you here today. Let's get right into this show as we have a lot to talk about as the college football world never stops turning. Neither does this little thing called the transfer portal that everybody seems so excited and enamored with. I've had tons of requests for a show that kind of details teams that we might need to watch out for here in the transfer portal, other teams that may not be killing it on that aspect. But one of those things that is very much a factor here in modern college football as we do have free one-time transfers as undergrads, you have graduate transfers that are hitting the portal, people scrapping and clawing and finding, trying to find better playing situations or maybe some kids have just grabbed a bag and dipped, as they like to say, you know, cashing in on big NIL checks before moving on to another program because we still live in this Wild West period of college football where a lot of this stuff is not regulated or standardized. So it makes for some really fun and interesting moves throughout the college football landscape here, here in the preseason of 2023. So you might be asking yourself, where can I find the best and most up-to-date information on the transfer portal? 24-7 Sports does a great job covering the movements in the transfer portal and uh, up-to-date, up up-to-second, up-to-the-minute activity as we've seen dramatic shifts across the different rosters here in uh, not only the Power 5 level, but the Group of 5 level. Even people from the FCS level getting involved in Division 2 coming in, taking their shot at playing at bigger, better rosters. Literally thousands of college athletes in the transfer portal. They have them ranked. They have them racked and stacked as the hottest commodities all the way down to people that are going to be lucky to land on another team. Let's talk about it for a second. If I was to take a look across our top-rated teams here in the transfer portal. Number 1A sticking out right now, and no surprise, is the University of Southern California as Lincoln Riley and that staff has done a really good job leveraging the portal last year, and they have not stopped. Again, electing to fill their coffers with talent from other rosters. I think there's a lot of things that are kind of generating this. I think I personally feel that Lincoln Riley understands what he has at the quarterback position with Caleb Williams. I think Caleb Williams really is a very special generational type player at the quarterback position, obviously when healthy. He played dynamite all year with the exception of really one game, the second game against Utah when he got banged up. Even that two-lane loss in the bowl game was really no fault of his own. 
That was other needs that USC has got to address, and it looks like they are addressing them here through the transfer portal. I feel like Lincoln Riley feels that with what he has at the quarterback position and certain other positions on this roster, he's a few players away from putting a squad together to maybe make a quick run at realizing that playoffs potential and maybe a national championship potential. Now, I would beg to differ personally. You know what my feelings are as far as building a team for success, for championship success. I'm always going to be the high school guy. I will keep pounding that drum until a team proves me otherwise. But USC could be that team that's well on their way to doing it. What I really like what they're doing here in the portal is they're picking up a lot of size and talent on the front seven. And USC's physicality on both lines of scrimmage has been something that we really have been very critical of, not just under the Lincoln-Riley years, but even before going back to Clay Helton. There's just a team that is very talented but not very physical. There is a need for blocking and tackling in a bad way at USC. Um, they need to really stop the run, and they need to become more physical, especially on that defensive side of the ball. That became so obvious in some of their competitions this year. Obviously, Utah taking it out on them in their rematch with the way they were able to get pretty much whatever they wanted. You saw that pop out on tape. Tulane was able to stay in and eventually win that game by winning the physical battle in the line of scrimmage versus USC. That's what it really came down to, and some really poor tackling that allowed for a lot of yards after catch and a lot of yards after contact. So what USC is doing, by going out and hitting the transfer portal, they're leveraging guys and adding pieces from the SEC and the Big Ten, namely Anthony Lucas, talented defensive lineman from Texas A&M. We're going to mention Texas A&M probably quite a bit. Uh, with players finding new homes as they have a ton of people in the roster. But I digress. We're not talking about Tamu right now, but we will get to them. Also, Jack Sullivan, a defensive lineman whose stock has risen They're picking since high school. They're picking him up from Purdue. And then very short tackling linebacker in Mason Cobb, a kid that is transferring from Oklahoma State. And these are some nice pieces that they have across that front seven. They're still going to produce offensive firepower there at USC, especially with Caleb Williams and Lincoln Riley kind of pulling the strings there. But these are some really nice additions for defensive coordinator Alex Grinch. And I think that if he's able to get some products that have been taught how to play with some physicality and at least make a freaking tackle in the open field, that'll go a long way towards building a nucleus defensively that we could see USC take a step in the right direction on that side of the ball. And if you're able to couple that with the same sort of offensive production that they were able to put out this year, you could end up potentially having a dangerous squad. So I'd say that they're winning in the portal right now. Another team that is winning in the portal right now, in my opinion, is Matt Rules, Nebraska. They are solidly in the top 10. I think they are at number seven right now for leveraging the portal overall. What I really like about what they're doing with their selections here in the portal is they're adding a lot of speed to the defensive side of the ball, mainly, again, once again, the front seven along the line of scrimmage. It makes me excited when I see teams start to understand this aspect of football where it requires athleticism, speed, and strength across your lines of scrimmage to have a legitimate shot at doing anything special. Football is a line of scrimmage game, as I have said many, many times before. If you want to make this a seven-on-seven camp, then there are going to be teams that have loads of skill talent that are always going to be at the top. But as long as there's a line of scrimmage, 
Trench play matters. You've heard me say this so many times before, and that's why in a line of scrimmage game, leagues like the SEC understand that across the entirety of those teams in that league, and it is a line of scrimmage league, and that is why you see them come out on top so much, and that's why you see so many of their players being hot commodities during this transfer portal season when these top-end SEC talents can't crack the roster at their uh, former teams, you know, the Alabamas and the Georgias, maybe the Texas A&Ms, the LSUs, whatever, they go find new homes. And that is exactly what has happened with linebacker M.J. Sherman from the Georgia Bulldogs, a former high four-star recruit, uh, maybe even a five-star recruit. I'm uh, checking here, but... Uh, they've picked him up to add some speed and athleticism across that defensive front. Linebacker Chief Borders coming in from the University of Florida. Cornerback Corey Collier from the University of Florida. They're adding this defensive speed on that side of the ball. Defensive lineman Eli Judy from Texas A&M. When you turn on Nebraska this past year and you watch that team, there were times when I remember watching them remarking to myself, I really feel as if I could play a couple of series defensively for Nebraska on that D-line because they just looked so – there was such a lack of agility, explosion, overall speed, and athleticism. Really stood out to me in their game against Northwestern to start the season, uh, the one they played in Ireland, of course. It just looked like Cornhuskers had concrete in their cleats is what it felt like to me. When you turn on the tape and watch that one, they just look stiff and they look slow. At the quarterback position, they have picked up Georgia Tech transfer quarterback Jeff Sims, which I think brings a dynamic of playmaking ability to the, to that Cornhuskers roster that I think is going to be very, very useful for them. I think Jeff Sims, a guy whose talents outweighed this, his former station there at Georgia Tech, and it'll be really interesting to see what Matt Rule is able to do with this quarterback as he certainly got the best out of you know, quarterbacks with lower ceilings like a Charlie Brewer who played for him at Baylor went on and didn't have the same kind of success after that year, after his couple of years with uh, with Matt Rule. So it would be really interesting to see what he's able to do with a talent like Jeff Sims there for the Huskers. So it should be, should be fun to watch. Another team that is actually killing it right now in the transfer front, and I really enjoy what they're doing as far as roster building goes, and I have to give this team their preseason flowers here because I certainly have been very critical of them many, many, many times, and especially this last season, is Auburn. Actually, the Auburn Tigers, they are really beefing up the defensive front and their offensive front as well. The O-line, D-line, uh, adding some really nice pieces there. I think one of the biggest splashes that they've made is actually just keeping a guy at home in Zakevius Walker, a very big body, athletic defensive lineman for them. But they've also added a guy like Justin Rogers, who was an absolute stone wall for the Kentucky Wildcats. They bring in Maryland's Mo Nasilikite, a guy that's going to be able to add some versatility on that defensive line, pretty good against the run, pretty good as far as pass rushing goes as well. And then on the offensive side of the ball, they bring in transfers in Gunner Britton and Avery Jones, a, a guy from Eastern Carolina, very talented center in his own right, uh, Gunner Britton, an offensive lineman transfer from Western Kentucky. And then to in addition to what they're building in the trenches on both sides of the ball, they also bring in playmakers at skill positions here, at wide receiver, 
Nick Mardner from Cincinnati, a kid whose stock has risen tremendously since high school, a high three-star recruit. Uh, running back Brian Batty from University of South Florida, a kid who's a highly rated four-star right now. And then tight end Rivaldo Fairweather from my alma mater, FIU, a kid that was under-recruited and under-scouted, ended up down there. This really exploded in terms of his stock and bringing him in. I think I like these pieces for this Auburn offense you know, to give quarterback Robbie Ashford, whoever's going to be taking snaps for the Auburn Tigers this next year, some more playmakers, some more guys to add a little bit of firepower and some juice to that offense. It was so anemic this last year. Auburn doing a smart thing by building their roster from the inside out, really putting a lot of emphasis on putting bodies back on that line of scrimmage and talented bodies back on that line of scrimmage. As I said before, the SEC is a line of scrimmage league. If you do not build your rosters from the inside out in that league, you're going to get eaten alive. It's just it's going to happen. Like you're you're not even going to have an opportunity to showcase how good or bad your skill talent is if you cannot figure out the line of scrimmage, especially in the SEC. And it's just very true. So that's something that Auburn under Hugh Freeze apparently gets and understands. And uh, it's exciting to see that if you're an Auburn fan, them going back to the blueprint, back to the basics of building this roster out. I'm not sure what it means for this 2023 season exactly, but if they keep trending in this direction, we could see Auburn make a resurgence here in a, you know, kind of a an interesting, I'm not going to say it's an up for grabs SEC West, but it's interesting. You know, there are some, there are some burgeoning powers, I think, that uh, you know are starting to emerge a little bit on that side of the conference. There are some traditional powers that have kind of taken a little bit of a step back. So it's it's really interesting to see how this little power struggle here in the SEC West is going to go. But Auburn putting themselves in good position by bringing in good players. Teams that are not doing so hot in the portal. Obviously, we're going to talk about Texas A&M. Texas A&M, north of 30 players in the portal at one point, I think officially leveled out at 28 now. First off, they're 104th in the overall transfer portal rankings, but losing guys like Anthony Lucas to Southern Cal, Marquise Killebrew to Louisville, Smoke Bowie recently announced uh, heading to Georgia, Chris Marshall, wide receiver headed to Ole Miss. All right, we've got Guys like Ish Harris on their way out. Denver Harris already at LSU committed there. We've got other guys like Marcus Burris headed to Indiana. We've got Josh Moten on his way out. We have Donald Harris. We have Dallas Walker the fourth. Just an absolute embarrassment of talent that is exiting the program for Texas A&M. Now they have landed guys like Aiden Ciano, a linebacker from Rice who has played higher than his billing. We uh, you know, have also added Tony Grimes, a highly rated four-star cornerback from the University of North Carolina, to come in and soften the blow of some of these losses here in the secondary. But all across the roster, and especially across the defensive side of the ball, we are seeing this exodus from Texas A&M. And it's just, I don't think that they are replacing enough of what they're actually losing to have a net, I guess, push or come out on the on the better end of it. Maybe from a culture perspective, which I think we'll actually would like to talk about a little bit further on. We're going to talk about AM a little bit later in the show too, culture-wise. But 
you know, there are some guys that were some disciplinary issues that are leaving this team through the transfer portal, and that's no secret as Jimbo Fisher, you know, probably pretty much gave the ultimatum as far as what some of the hijinks that were pulled this last year. Obviously, the marijuana incident in the locker room, the traffic violation incidents. We had groups of players heading to Prairie View A&M to go be part of their homecoming during preparation for a game and everything else. So just a team that wasn't locked in, wasn't really paying attention, and just kind of a bad – we've talked about the lack of culture at A&M as far as you know, doing the right thing and having that kind of discipline up and down on the roster, roster leadership – player-led organization, leadership in the coaching staff and everything else, leaving a little bit to be desired there. So there are some problem children, I guess you could say, quote-unquote, that are on their way out. I don't, know, I don't know these folks personally, of course, but you know, it wasn't a good fit at A&M, let's just put it that way. And they are headed out, but these are also extremely talented guys that A&M was touting big time in the preseason this last year. A big reason why they were so excited in College Station, everybody was so excited in College Station, because these guys were part of the highest rating recruited class of all time. And now we're seeing so many of them exit stage right out of College Station. And it's just not proportionate bringing in uh, this next recruiting class, nor is it what we're exchanging here in the portal. So uh, overall, I think AM is definitely being a, is, is a big time portal loser. Another one is Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State is losing about 15 or so players to the transfer portal, which is nuts to say because that's still quite a few, but it's like half of what AM's losing, right? But the thing is, is o- Oklahoma State is also a program that doesn't have anywhere near the depth of an AM already. Even with AM losing what they have, in terms of highly talented guys, it's still a deeper roster than what you're going to see at an Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State is very much a developmental program. And when you start losing your depth and you start losing some bedrock guys and some guys that are still a year or two away from being fully developed into players that are going to contribute on your roster, it makes it really hard for you as a developmental program to have sustained success. you're getting thinner and thinner on that roster. Not to mention signal caller Spencer Sanders is in the portal also. We already mentioned Mason Cobb, you know, very talented linebacker heading on to USC. But there's also guys, there's a plethora of other guys that would have seen probably legitimate playing time here this next year, if not the year after. So it's, it's, it's an interesting situation for Mike Gundy and Oklahoma State there at that program to see how they go about this. Oklahoma State is not a team that is chock full of four- and five-star players. They're still south of 50% on the blue-chip ratio. So even though that they're losing these guys that are three-star players here, three-star player there, those are the kinds of players that play and are developed at Oklahoma State. So it'll be really interesting to see how they go about addressing this issue as Mike Gundy believes wholeheartedly in you know his system, uh, how they do things there at Oklahoma State, not ever a, a super prolific guy as far as shopping the portal. So it's really interesting to see you know the the numbers at which are exiting the program here for Oklahoma State, um, and it makes you beg the question if you know players are wondering whether or not that this this year with Texas and Oklahoma you know sort of not being as dominant as. Texas and Oklahoma were historically the that Oklahoma State couldn't step up to seize that crown to take that Big 12 title 
makes you wonder where this roster's kind of head is at. Wonder, you know, wondering if they're looking for better opportunities to to go on and be part of championship programs and whatnot. But back to that roster point, you know, we saw that this team was just, you know, a couple of key players getting injured away from sort of a disaster season. You saw Oklahoma State, how hot they were in the first half of the season. They take some key injuries. Obviously, their starting quarterback gets injured, which is a huge one. But it's still, you saw it derail the entire season for Oklahoma State. And that just, that speaks to a lack of depth on the roster that's getting thinner by the moment. So it'll be really interesting, like I said, to see where they go from this. Another team that I wanted to point out that I think is losing big time in the portal and for a very similar, if not exactly the same reasons as Oklahoma State, is Wake Forest. Now, we know that their talented signal caller and leader, Sam Hartman, is on his way to Notre Dame as we speak. He is committed there. That's a huge loss for Wake. And there have been a lot of other players that have left in the wake of that news. No pun intended. Of course, there's pun intended. That's a total dad joke. I just snuck it in there. You're welcome. But I digress. My point is this. Wake is a team that, once again, they get old and they stay old. And it is really hard to get old and stay old when the portal is shopping a lot of your depth and a lot of your pieces and a lot of your players that were going to be your starters next year and the year after when they're taking some of the youth and the underbelly from this squad, it's going to be really tough. We saw Wake Forest return to earth a little bit this season after playing for an ACC championship last year. Really interesting because, you know, taking a look at them, we said that Wake Forest was going to be one of these teams that was going to return to earth this season. Uh, and we saw that. We saw some teams that kind of elevated and took that shot at a, at a higher level, had a a monstrous year kind of return back to earth. You know, we're talking about Wake Forest is one of those teams. Uh, in a more dramatic fashion, I think we saw Michigan State as another one of those teams that really overachieved in 2021 and came back to more reality here in 2022. Um, and so if you are talking about what has made Wake successful, it's that get old, stay old model, and the, the portal is doing them no favors right now. So just some quick quick thoughts there on the portal. There are a ton of other roster moves. Like I said, 24-7 Sports does a really good job of tracking this stuff. So if you're interested about the moves that your team is making or who potentially that you could end up picking up or seeing, you know, um, I, I would, I would suggest you get over there and take a look at that. Also, as a side note, I don't want to be cast as a Deion Sanders hater or a Colorado hater, but I think it is important to point out one of the things that we kind of said, and this is piggybacking on the points that we made on earlier episodes about Deion Sanders moving to Colorado and whether or not he was going to be able to accrue a bunch of talent that was going to put him in a position that was going to be similar to compete in the Pac-12 or, or, or out-talent rosters because that is the only version of teams that we have seen Deion Sanders coach so far. And I said that, you know, moving into the Pac-12 at Colorado, unless he does that again, we were going to see the real coaching chops. We are going to see the real Deion Sanders coaching with a roster that is in many, many ways inferior now in the league that he's currently in. You know, coming out of the SWAC, coming out of HBCU, we talked about how talented those teams were. And we thought, we had a hypothesis 
that it wasn't going to be the same song, different verse at Colorado because what was the real draw there? So early on in the recruiting cycle here, uh, in the portal cycle, I should say, Colorado jumped out to the number two overall portal class. They are currently sitting down at 78th. So when these other teams at the Power 5 level, these better established collectives, started making moves, you saw what happened. The empirical evidence is there right now to suggest that Colorado is still not an attractive spot. I'm sorry, it's not. It takes more than an Amazon reality TV special, the social media, you know, cuteness and finesse. It takes more than that to actually get players to your program in this day and age. It takes a well-organized front office. It takes a United Boosters. It takes a collective that is competitive, not just pledging money, but actually signing the checks, okay? It's, it's not just a sales pitch. You got to see the cold hard. There are programs that get that, and they are doing that, and they have done that, and they're continuing to do that, and Colorado's not there yet. And to fall from number two all the way down to 78 – proves that to me in many, many ways. So it'll be really interesting to see this first year under Coach Sanders because if he was hoping to leverage the portal to get him a a competitive roster quick, I, I don't know what the expectations there in Boulder were. I hope that wasn't what they were sold on because empirically right now it would suggest that that is not going that way. So that's a quick snapshot of the portal. Winners, losers, people that are killing it right now. Others that got some work to do. What's next for Georgia? That's a question that a lot of people have been asking. Uh, because once again, we are sitting in a position where Georgia's going to lose quite a bit of personnel to the draft. They've already lost, uh, or is seemingly lost, uh, more than a few players to the portal as well, as I think they're up to eight or nine sitting at this point. Very talented players, but players that were going to be more rotational guys Maybe not guys that were going to come into starting roles, but guys that certainly were going to work towards that depth. So what's what's next, right? We talked a little bit about the quarterback position because I think that's one of the biggest kind of red marks right now uh, for this roster. Taking a look at it, obviously we have a quarterback in Stetson Bennett who has had that locker room, you know, largely in his grasp for about the last two seasons or so, right? Ever since being named the full-time starter for sure. But, you know, prior to that, two national titles, an SEC championship game, you know, multiple MVP awards in the postseason. One of these guys that's going to finish his career with some really good numbers, uh, when you, especially when you set it against the sample size of the amount of games he actually started. Uh, a guy that was through and through a Georgia Bulldog, still will be. He'll never pay for a beer in the state of Georgia, I can promise you that. And so now with him moving out and taking all of that experience with him and a, an ability that was developed, a talent that was developed, you saw him grow as he was there. What's left, right? So we talked about Carson Beck, who is a kid who's a product out of the state of Florida from Mandarin High School, very talented, uh, highly rated four-star quarterback coming out of high school. A guy that has been in Todd Munkin's system the last two, I think th almost three years now. Uh, a guy that has gotten some obviously good reps uh, this season, has come in in relief in a few spots, and has gotten some you know significant relief playing time. A guy that has practiced and 
obviously learned from the position coaches and everything else like that and the system in which Todd Munkin is still there. I, I can't stress enough how important the coordinator continuity is right now at Georgia for the success of this 2023 Georgia football team. And then, you know, he's sharing that room with a guy like Brock Vandegrift, the five-star recruit out of Athens, Georgia himself. He was a big get in the uh, recruiting class that he came in with couple of years ago. And then quarterback Gunnar Stockton, the one-time South Carolina commit, and now in that room. So when you take a look at these different quarterbacks, obviously they all have they all have arm talent. They all have had the benefit of learning behind Stetson Bennett and learning from Todd Munkin, offensive staff there, everybody else. Like I said, they have the ability, they have talent, they have the credentials coming out of high school. And in a base level talent and ability way, I'd say that they're better than Stetson Bennett and what Stetson Bennett had to work with, you know, maybe early on in his career. He built himself into that player. I think they are starting off in a better position, right? With Carson Beck, he's a guy that we have seen deliver the ball, very, very pretty throwing motion, strong arm, accurate downfield guy, but you do lose an aspect of mobility with him, right? Um, You're going to, you know, you got to think more of a, more of a JT Daniels, maybe not a complete statue. I think he's. I think he moves better than JT Daniels. But you got to think more of a, more of a little bit maybe of a Jake from, you know, your traditional pocket passing quarterback. Brock Vandegrift, a kid that was very athletic in high school with the legs and the arm, but has a propensity to turn the ball over, take some risks that you wish that he didn't. That's his biggest ding thus far. And reportedly, one of the biggest reasons that he wasn't considered more realistically for a backup role or to really pursue the starting role over the last two years. And then Gunnar Stockton, a kid that I think most resembles Stetson Bennett's skill set with what he's going to be able to do athletically, mobility wise, arm strength, all that stuff. But a kid who has the least amount of experience and time in that system. Uh, For me, I think the starting nod is going to go to a Carson Beck. It also depends on what is going on with that offensive line there for Georgia as they are losing some key pieces again to the draft and then obviously the extremely, extremely disheartening, heartbreaking, and sad news, the tragedy that occurred just a couple days ago with the passing of Devin Willock, offensive lineman, who was going to step into a bigger starting role this year, passing away in a uh, horrific car accident that also claimed the life of Georgia staff assistant Chandler LaCroix, the both of them passing away. Um, and uh, just heart goes out to all of Dog Nation, everybody who is involved in that. But it does pose questions for the offensive line coming in this next year as we're going to see a true turnover in number of snaps, you know, just overall experience. It's not that they're not going to be talented at those positions because they will. Uh, They have recruited very well at those positions over the last several years. But the experience and continuity that the offensive lines of the last two Georgia Bulldogs teams have had has been something special. And these are units that have been absolutely robbed of the Joe Moore Award the last two years. I do not believe that Michigan's offensive lines, either one of them, was better than what was in Athens the last two years. I'm just going to say that flat out. 
Michigan had a has had good offensive line play. I'm not taking anything away from them, but if I could take anything away from them, it would certainly be this year's Joe Moore Award. I I, I can play ball that they won it in 2021, but this was undoubtedly the best offensive line of 2022. Um, so that'll be interesting. Do, are they going to have an offensive line that's going to allow a guy like Carson Beck to stay back there in protection and be able to dish and do what he does best? Or are they going to be a line that maybe favors a guy with a little more mobility in a Brock Vandegrift or a Gunnar Stockton? The good news is for Georgia is the quarterback room is loaded and it's varied as well. You have different guys with different skill sets, and that's how you really do want to go about if if you're capable of doing it, which they are, they are in Athens, when you – recruit your position rooms you want different tools for different jobs and uh and that's what they have in the quarterback room and that's what they have at a lot of other uh position groups as well the schedule coming into this next year is laughably easy i don't want to go across the entire uh schedule right that's available to you just google that if you're that interested but i will say this one thing that is a little bit concerning to me and i've brought this up as a criticism of other teams in the past namely clemson is one of the teams that i've talked about USC, another one, is when you are a very talented – Ohio State, I've talked about this with Ohio State too. When you are a very talented team and you have what would be considered a pretty easy roster, right, you don't get enough touch points to really blood your team against quality opponents, right? And that can cost you in a championship run. Now, I've been critical of this before. I've talked about this before with other teams. So I think it's only fair that I talk about this with Georgia. That is a concern for me. I think it is because if Georgia romps through what should be on paper, another very easy schedule, not exactly chock full of killers. And, you know, they are double digit favorites in pretty much every one of their competitions. And they kind of loaf through that. And then they get a taste of a real competitor you know, a real solid elite roster and the first time they're tasting it is at the SEC championship game or maybe in the playoff, you know, you could end up in a position where the shell shock there is what costs you. You know, you, you weren't ready for that level of speed and physicality, all that other stuff like that. And what you did the year prior and the year prior to that, that really doesn't hold much bearing if you are, if, if it's a new experience to you because you're the guy that's coming in. You know, you didn't play those snaps in the game before. You didn't experience that. It is a new experience to you. So I think that could potentially be a stumbling block for this Georgia team this next year. The defensive side of the ball is still loaded. I've already talked about it. Jamon Dumas Johnson, Smile Munden, Bear Alexander, Javon Bullard, Malachi Starks. These guys are all – there's a whole bunch of – Jalen Walker, that's another one. Like, dudes are – they are loaded. Michael Williams, there's another one. I, You know, you're just sitting there thinking of these highly rated four- and five-star guys that are coming back on the defensive side of the ball. And we know defense lives and is alive and well in Athens. And I think that next year's defensive unit for this this 2023 defensive unit for the Dogs, it, I think it'll be just as good, if not a little bit better, than what we saw this season out of Georgia on the defensive side of the ball because this was sort of the transition point, losing all of that talent. We knew there was going to be a lot of young players. The good news is, is they got a ton of on-the-job training this year, and there are a lot of young players that are coming back for another year in starting roles on the defensive side of the ball for Georgia. So defensively, I still think they're going to be an absolute monster. My real question is, what does that offensive line look like? Because I think that that could be 
You know, I think that this 2023 Georgia team is going to go about as far as they go. Your signal caller, obviously, who are they going with? Running back and wide receiver rooms should be loaded. Skill talent for the Georgia Bulldogs on the offensive side of the ball is going to be very, very fun to watch. It, it, it really does come down to what does that line of scrimmage play look like on the offensive line and how what sort of quarterback do we go with you know, do we go with the guy that's going to sit back there and dish it, or do we go with a more mobile attack, you know, to try to keep some of the scheme and principles that we were able to get with the Stetson Bennett? So it'll be interesting to see what Georgia does, but make no mistake, they are solidly, like I said, in the championship run every single year until I'm proven otherwise, in my opinion. And we are very much right now, you know, in that beginning stage of this dynasty run here for Georgia. I, I fully, I fully expect that I will pull my head up in a couple of years and, you know, we will see at least another national title uh, for Georgia. I just, you know, they're, they're in it. They're the it team right now. The rest of these teams have a little bit of ways to climb. Speaking of one of those teams that has a little ways to climb, it's Alabama. Now here's the deal. Georgia right now is sitting on the summit of the mountain. They have pitched their tent. They've started a fire. They're eating s'mores, okay? Alabama has vacated that spot. Now, they haven't tumbled all the way down to base camp. They're not sitting at the bottom of the mountain. They're not sitting in a big shit heap at the bottom with everybody else. They are, but they're a checkpoint or two down, okay? They are just outside. They are just outside the light of that fire, and they're watching, and they're hungry, and they want to go get those s'mores. And that chair looks comfortable. And I think they want to pitch their tent up there. And they're sitting there, and there's another team that's also sitting there with them probably in the SEC West, and I would say that's LSU. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about LSU here later on the podcast. But, you know, they are in that territory right now where they are just outside the campfire like a hungry wolf. They are watching, okay, and they are preparing themselves to make this climb back up and challenge for that spot on the summit. And how I know that is, you know, when we're talking about Alabama and what they're doing, I think one of the key marquee things and one of the power moves that you just saw Nick Saban make was getting rid of Pete Golding at defensive coordinator. When you have looked at Alabama teams of the past that have truly dominated, I mean, the, the ones that really dominated in devastating fashion, the ones that couldn't be touched, the ones that were that had the same kind of energy that you saw out of you know this Georgia Bulldogs team from you know I'm going to say post SEC championship game last year right as as we all know Alabama got the best of them in that one so after that game all the way through where we're currently sitting the Alabama teams that had that same kind of energy were built from the inside out on the defensive side of the ball and I don't think it's any coincidence either that Kirby Smart was the defensive coordinator so take that for what it's worth, right? Building a championship blueprint on the defensive side of the ball. It was like running into a stone wall when you played those old Alabama defenses. Not so much the case over the last couple of years. Not so much the case, uh, especially under this Pete Golding system that goes with a 2-4-5 base defense. You know, like I was talking about, line of scrimmage play matters in the SEC. And when you are putting two down defensive linemen and expecting good results, it, it's, I, he must be drinking more than we even thought. So 
that that's just the thing. I think I think the uh, the release it's the release of Pete Golding, right? Or Pete Golding has elected to take a parallel position at the University of Mississippi. That is uh, that's no shock to me. That's a firing. You know, that, that's what that is. And we've heard Nick Saban here in this offseason in the bowl game presser and here in the offseason talk about getting back to the Alabama standard, put in quotations. And I have talked at length in previous episodes and even going back to last season about how I thought the transfer portal was not a benefit to a program like Alabama. It is a program that requires a lot it is a program that was built on culture and talent and talent working hard with that culture. Where are we seeing that right now? Athens, Georgia. That's where we're seeing that right now. I think Nick, I think it pains him and kills him and makes him just cringe. I think his toes curl in his shoes when he sees what Kirby is doing at Athens and conversely what's happening in Tuscaloosa. You have to remember, a lot of people want to talk about how Alabama, if they were in the playoff, this year, they would have beaten Georgia. First off, they wouldn't have, okay? No, they wouldn't have. I don't believe they would, first off. So you can cram that one. Secondly, they didn't deserve to be there. They did not deserve to be there. They might have been more talented than TCU, absolutely. But you earn your spot in the playoff with what it is you do during the year. A lot of people want to point at the fact that they had two losses by, what was it, four points or something like that? Four points separated them from, you know, the college football playoff, right? Okay, but how many one-possession wins did they also have? How many close calls and narrow escapes did they also have on their schedule? How many times did you see Alabama with double-digit penalties and miscues, missed tackles, lack of effort on both sides of the ball? Lack of focus on both sides of that, that. This was a team that did not deserve the playoff. When you compared this Alabama team over the last couple of years, especially this year, it became glaring to what you saw out of Alabama teams in the past, they would have gotten wrecked by those Alabama teams of the past. Maybe not in terms of talent, but certainly in terms of execution. And so we see now Nick Saban making a transition back to the Alabama standard what he considers to be the Alabama standard. And you see, Alabama is just as powerful and has just as much prowess in the recruiting the, the recruiting landscape as they ever have. They are leading the nation in recruiting. They are getting back to their model. Alabama is getting back to their model. Okay, They haven't gone away. This isn't the death of Alabama. The, the, the ascension of Georgia does not mean the death of Alabama. It means that we're about to have two... Apex predators come into blows for the foreseeable future. When you talk about what Clemson was able to do when they were still evolving, you know, before that 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 program got stagnant, which we're, you know, we've seen recent moves by Dabo to go ahead and get Clemson back into relevancy. You saw two apex predators there for a, for about a six-year stretch squaring off. Okay, they played four consecutive times in the postseason. You saw them trade national championships. You saw an extremely high level of domination within the conference and the national uh, landscape from Clemson concurrently with Alabama. I think that's what you're going to see. I think, you know, Georgia is going to be right there. They're going to be doing it. But Alabama 
It won't take them long to get their act together. It won't take them long. They will make a move for that campfire. They are going to go back to that summit. They're going to be there. The question is whether or not Georgia can put down the s'mores, get off the chair, and duke it out with them for that spot and send them back down the hill. We'll find out. We will. Because if Alabama doesn't do it, there will be another team. And I think that team resides in Baton Rouge when you're talking about the moves that Brian Kelly has been making recently and the kind of roster that they have returning here for this 2023. I think right now Nick Saban feels the pressure and understands that if he continues to take these shots of steroids from the portal here, thinking that this, the, the quick fix is going to be the way for this Alabama Crimson Tide team, they're going to continue to come up short. And I don't think he has any designs on releasing you know, that death clutch that the Crimson Tide had on college football. Not quietly. A couple of down seasons are not going to define that program. They will be back in the hunt. You'll see. Speaking of culture that needs to be corrected, speaking of talent that is underperformed, I got to talk about Texas A&M. I mean, I work out here, right? Um, here, here's my question. We've talked about what's exiting Texas A&M. We also know what's staying at Texas A&M. There, there is still a very talented football team that is on the campus here in College Station, a team that I believe that is a, a couple of good culture moves and some strong leadership away from making a 5-7 and seven season a thing of memory, a thing of the past. This is a team that, from a talent perspective, literally should not lose more than two or three games a year. They should be right up there pushing Alabama and LSU every single year, right? This should be a consistent 10-2, 9-3 with the ability to reach up and win a conference championship every couple of years, right? I, I certainly believe that from a talent perspective. They have the kind of talent that you can win a national championship with if the culture's right. So, you start asking me why I'm scratching my head about the recent moves that have been made at Texas A&M. So we've already talked about the floodgates that are open in the portal. Now Jimbo Fisher has elected to bring in Bobby Petrino as the offensive coordinator. And from a culture perspective, this one has me really scratching my head. Because this is a guy, this is a coach that has been fired for cause from two different institutions. This is a guy who didn't have a win in the NFL and quit in the middle of the night without ever informing his team. Never Didn't even call a meeting. Just left. Left Atlanta. Right? That's that guy. They're bringing him in. He's going to be the new OC in College Station. What? What? So it begs the question for me. This is kind of, I'm scratching my head. You have a team that has already shown that it has an issue with culture. We have culture issues in College Station. And you're bringing in a guy who was fired for having multiple affairs while being a head coach. Nefarious activity, to say the unsavory character, to say the least, right? And also a guy who quit when the going got tough without so much as a two-weeks notice, a player meeting, or, a, or an apology, right, at the pro level, and you bring him in as the OC. I don't think this is going to end well. I don't think this is going to end well. I think that you could see some success from Texas A&M this year from pure talent perspective, but in no way, shape, or form do I think this marriage of Jimbo Fisher and Bobby Petrino is going to work out in the long run. 
I do not think so. In fact, I would go as so far as to say, I think there may be some ulterior motives at play with this move. I'm not, maybe from both parties. I'm not sure. You know what? I'm not going to speculate or pontificate on that right now on this podcast because, you know, I I don't want to get that far down the, the talking head rabbit hole, but it is puzzling to me that a guy like Bobby Petrino comes in as the offensive coordinator for the Aggies here in 2023. I do want to see this program be successful. I have a personal vested interest because I am here. I want to go see some good football games. I want to cheer for a team at an institution that I'm currently employed at that has success. I do. I want to see Texas A&M be good. Okay? I do. I'm going to be rooting for the dogs when they come to town here in another <laughs> couple of years. But, I, you know, if they're not playing Georgia, I'm pulling for A&M. Right. It's 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 head scratching to me. I'm not exactly sure. Right. And speaking about 2023, let's talk about a couple of teams for just a moment from a 50,000 foot perspective that I think could be postured for a great 2023 season. I think the first place to start would be Florida State. I think the, the Seminoles, in my opinion, have been building their program brick by brick under Mike Norvell. I've talked I've given him his flowers in previous episodes and previous seasons about what he's been able to do there at Florida State as far as flipping the culture goes. And they are also doing very well in the portal again. They have a lot of pieces that I think are going to be key to success returning this next year, such as Jordan Travis at the quarterback position. But Jared Verse as their edge rusher, I think, is a huge stay, right? A guy that is coming back. He'll be there. And I think they're going to be postured here in the ACC for this next year to really make a real stab at winning an ACC crown. Now, I don't know about a playoff appearance. I certainly don't know about a national championship. But Florida State, I think, could be a team that truly returns this next year to their rightful place in the college football universe. They th- This year was good for them. It was a It was a good year, right? But is it still the kind of year that we have come to expect and, and the kind of Florida State dominance that we have known from the 90s and the early 2000s? No, still not quite because that would be making BCS New Year's Six Bowl games consistently, right, at, le- at, at the floor, if not pushing for a national championship, right? So I think that this 2023 season could be the year that you see Florida State return to that level of prowess you know, with a possible ACC championship, um, maybe maybe pushing for more than that. But I think they're in for a very good year this year. LSU, we talked about them sort of being in that, that checkpoint right on the mountain right next to Alabama. LSU and Alabama are kind of eyeing where Georgia's at. This LSU team, I think, is going to be very good here in 2023. They do have quite a bit of returning production. We saw a core nucleus of young guys get a lot of on-the-job training this year for the Tigers and they have a returning signal caller and a backup signal caller in Garrett Nussmeyer that I think could potentially have them in a position where they're even better. It's very exciting there in Baton Rouge when you see a coach like Brian Kelly building a team, a roster, a culture with a level of talent that he never had previously. He had he had good development and good players at Cincinnati. He had good players at Cincinnati with good development and a good system, right? When he went to Notre Dame, they had very good, very good talent. Player development was still there. 
and nationally they recruited very good. All right. He has elite level talent at LSU. The access to elite level, consistent Sunday player talent at LSU and is putting the same formula that you saw him put together at Notre Dame and Cincinnati to have the levels of success that he had at those programs. And you're seeing him do it at Baton Rouge, in Baton Rouge. It, it, it's really, it's very quite interesting. It's interesting to see how much momentum this LSU team is going to be able to capitalize on with him at the helm. And I think they're primed for a very good 2023 uh, season. In fact, I will just come out and tell you right now on this podcast that I think they will be in Atlanta. I think that the LSU Tigers will be in Atlanta for 2023. I think that it'll be a tight race again. It's going to come down between them. I think Alabama's obviously going to be right back in that conversation. I think there will be another team from the West that, you know, will also push this year as well. But when the dust settles, I think we could be looking at another double-digit win LSU Tigers team on their way to Atlanta that's going to have some real juice and some serious firepower and play at a level that is even higher than what we saw this year when they squared off against Georgia. So that that's my two cents on LSU. I think they're primed for something special here in 2023. Penn State, Penn State. Okay. I don't think there's a team in the country that benefits more from their conference dissolving the division lines more than Penn State. This was a team whose only two losses this year were to Michigan and Ohio State, which are both playoff teams. The Ohio State competition was closer than the scoreboard reflected. There were some fluky things that happened there at the end. Michigan, they got dominated. They did. Michigan took care of business with them. But Penn State beat everybody else they played pretty damn comfortably. I think they were really good against the spread. They cap it off with a Rose Bowl win against a Utah team that's very good. A very good Utah team. But they dominated that competition from from the outset. They have a lot of young returning production, which is no different than any of the other teams I just talked about. Their signal caller position does not return as Sean Clifford is going to be on. I mean, he can't hang out any longer, but it is in good hands, at least talent-wise, with quarterback Drew Aller. And then they have Nick Singleton returning at their running back position, kid that's really talented. Defensively, it's another year of Manny Diaz with some really good defensive recruits that they, the hay is already in the recruiting barn from this last year. They've begun to develop that already. They have a good roster coming back. I think they are primed and in a position right now to make that next push towards legitimately playing for a Big Ten crown. Ohio State is still a very talented roster. They have some good pieces all across it, but they are losing a significant part of their team and and their operation with C.J. Stroud now electing for the NFL draft. So it should be really interesting because Penn State is a team that has always had neighborhood talent to you know, the Ohio States and the Michigans. So it'll be really interesting to see what James Franklin can do developing this roster and hopefully learning from his mistakes of the past to maybe put Penn State in a great position to seize a Big Ten championship and maybe crest the college football playoff for the first time. Definitely have an eye on them. Oregon, Dan Lanning in year two. I think Oregon out there in the Pac-12 is still very legit. I think there is still a lot in the cabinet Uh, talent-wise, that was recruited over the Mario Cristobal years. And you have Bo Nix returning, a guy that's played a lot of college football. He's obviously thrived out there in that league with a much better offensive situation. Now, they do lose their OC in this next year, but um, 
I, I trust landing and staff to bring in somebody that is going to play to the strengths of what they have there personnel-wise. They're continuing to leverage the portal very nicely. They have a very solid portal recruiting class as well to bring in the onesies and twosies to kind of fill that roster, those roster needs. And, uh, you know, going 10-3 and three with that bowl win over North Carolina in his first year under the helm, you know, a lot of lessons learned. With the continuity that they have on the roster returning, I think we could see something pretty special from them. Oklahoma, okay? We are not that far removed. You only have to go back to 2021 where Oklahoma was winning a bowl game, okay, against Oregon, the aforementioned, right? Um, and they were, you know, still a 10-win team. Now, obviously, we understand that Lincoln Riley left and he gutted that roster, you know, and then Brent Venables came into a situation that was less than ideal. But they are making some pretty good splashes on the recruiting trail here in this offseason. Dylan Gabriel's returning at the quarterback position for the Sooners. I think that's huge, right? You can always look at teams that have talent. If they have a returning quarterback situation as well, especially a guy that's played a lot of college football as Dylan Gabriel has and has been in a lot of different situational spots, as long as that guy stays healthy and they leverage that team to its fullest potential, they could be right back in that mix. I mean, there there is nobody else in the Big 12 that really scares me off my stance on Oklahoma. Really nobody. Year in and year out, Kansas State is a developmental team. Okay, Kansas doesn't have the latent talent to do it. All right. Oklahoma State, we've already talked about a huge exodus of talent with them, and they're also a developmental team, right? Oklahoma has been one of the stalwarts there in that conference year in and year out that's been the prestige of that conference for a long time. Them and then Texas, and then occasionally another team pops up into that spot. But Oklahoma has been the toast of that conference forever and a day. I think that it is an exception rather than the norm, which you saw out Oklahoma this year. And I think that they return to their prominence here in 2023. I think they're a team that is right back in that Big 12 title hunt. I think I expect them to be a 9 or 10 win team and get this Brett Venables you know, tenure here in Norman moving in the right direction. I don't trust Texas. Texas is completely loaded with talent. They're always completely loaded with talent. They've been completely loaded with talent for years and years and years. Go back and look at their recruiting rankings over the last, like, I don't know, 8 to 12 years. Look where they have been at. They have always been near the top, and they have always underperformed. I would say this year they underperformed. Absolutely, they were picked to win the conference. They had the best odds to win the Big 12 they had an over-under win total set that would suggest that they were going to win 10-plus games. They still underperformed this year. They're good, but they're not great, right? And so it doesn't scare me off of Oklahoma here, right? TCU, talking about them for a second. This TCU team this year was loaded with fifth- and sixth-year talent. Their best players are going to go on to the league. They're not sticking around for another turn. They're going on to the league. Their best talent is going on to the league, and they're a developmental program. Now, they're picking up some nice pieces in the portal. I will say that, but I really do feel that those key positions like Max Duggan and Quentin Johnston and D winners. And those guys were what made this team go this year. Steve Avila offensive lineman on the interior, huge reasons why this TCU team did what they did this year. I don't expect that they're going to return to the same level of success next year. So give me Oklahoma in the Big 12, I think, for a big year here in 2023. And then lastly, let's talk about the team that almost everybody loves to hate. I'm not talking about Ohio State because, you know, Ohio State is 
pretty consistent with what they do year in and year out. But I think Notre Dame. Notre Dame is a team that was picked in the preseason top five. I think a lot of people expected a lot of really good things out of Notre Dame. I thought that they would do better than what we saw out of them. I was thinking that it was a 10-2, and 9-3 and three at worst Irish team. I believe they were, what, they were 8-4 and four on the year. Got a bowl win and a scrappy fight against South Carolina. This is a team, this is a program, rather, that has been a quarterback away for a while. And I still do believe that that is true. I think that Sam Hartman coming into this situation with Notre Dame, his experience level, what he's been able to bring to the table there at Wake Forest. He's a good player. He's a good quarterback. He is going to give them more than competent quarterback play. The question is, is can they surround him with enough supporting cast talent for it to matter? Now, I am of the opinion that I think he's a quarterback that elevates the rest of your offense, actually makes your wide receiver room better as well. But defensively, I think Notre Dame's going to be just fine. They're always really good up front with what they're able to do on the offensive line. They are a team that believes in running the ball, and I think that that will really support what Sam Hartman is going to be able to bring to that roster. Because if you think about it at Wake Forest, slightly different offensive attack, right? More gimmicky, needing to rely on wrecking a defense's eye discipline with the long mesh concepts that they ran, and then maybe you throw it over the top, or maybe you do hand it off. It's different. He didn't have a team that could just line up and maul you, right? And that's what you got at Notre Dame. Notre Dame has the bodies up front to be able to do that, where you can go with a traditional run game and you can go traditional play action. And with the kind of arm talent that he's bringing to the table and his IQ for the game, I think is what is so big. If Notre Dame avoids those mistakes and gets better than competent quarterback play to go along with the talent that they have on the rest of this roster, I think you could see a big jump in production from year one to year two under Marcus Freeman and the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. So those are some teams that I think are postured for a pretty good 2023. I, sh- I would say better than what they did this year, okay, is what I'm going to say. Better than what they did this year. I think, those are, I think those are some teams to look out for. But I digress. I certainly appreciate you spending some time with us here today on the Any Given You podcast. We're going to keep it going and keep it rolling here through season three and continue to put out the best college football content that we possibly can, obviously bringing fresh perspectives and independent underground thought to the college football landscape, which is what we love to do here. And we love all of you. If you've enjoyed what you've heard here today, please tell your friends about the podcast. Consider following us or liking us on Spotify, Apple Pods, wherever you get your podcasts. Five-star reviews are always encouraged. A quick review would be wonderful. Share it with your college football friends. We're going to keep this going here through the offseason, all the way on to the preseason, all the way on to the 2023 college football season. And remember, any given time, any given place, any given team, you get it here at any given year.